Today, or at least this morning, we continue in our study of Job. And for those of you that thought, oh, it's a Christmas celebration Sunday, we're going to get a Christmas message. No, you have to wait till actual Christmas Day. And yes, you fleshly individuals that thought that we would not meet on, on Christmas Day, right? How odd that is um, to, to us and to the Lord, might I say, right? We will still meet on the Lord's Day, on Christmas Day. Um, and by the way, uh, there will be nothing else. There will be just our morning service. But uh, come out, you know, if you have to open presents, then open presents, you know. Um, but get up early and then come out and celebrate the Lord's birth with us on Christmas Day. That only happens a few times in your lifetime, right? Is that about every seven years, right? Is that leap year, throws things off. So you probably only have like 10 of those. And you're, right? No? 12 of those? I don't know. Okay. Anyway. Um, Job chapter 30 and 31 is our primary text this morning. But um, we're in that, that portion of Job that is the, the finality of uh, everything that has been said. Remember we said that the calamity of Job's life had taken place in a singular day, right? The Lord had stricken everything. His, his, his stuff was stolen. His home was destroyed. His children are killed. His wife says you should just give up. Just curse God and let it be done. And Job himself breaks out and boils and pains and is suffering and is outside, right, society. He's outside the city, like out in the garbage dump maybe. Somewhere like that where he can be separated from all those that might think of him as being diseased. And then his friends have gathered. And when his friends have come to see him, initially there is there's that sympathy of company, that ministry of presence that has been helpful to him for a period of time. Then afterwards they begin to speak. And as they begin to speak and apply their great intelligence, right, and their great experience in spiritual things to Job's circumstance, they come to a singular conclusion. Job, these things don't happen on accident. There's not a randomness in the universe. God is sovereign, and can I repeat that whether it's Job or his friends, they all agree on the singularly sovereign, absolutely powerful hand of God in everything that happens in their life. They all affirm that. Job does too. None of them are like, oh, God's trying really hard, Job. What can we do? Right? That's more of a modern invention on many theologians' parts, and it's weird. They are convinced this is God's hand. But their understanding, the only way they can explain this is to think, you must have done something pretty horrible and hidden for God to make your suffering so excruciating and public. You, you, you need to confess it to get right. That's the only hope of getting things back in order. And Job, through the entirety of the book of Job, Right? And all the dialogues, the three cycles of dialogues, has said, no, I haven't done anything that I can point to as being sin. He's not saying that he's sinless. Right? We catch Job in the very opening chapter, like offering sacrifices, going through the normal rituals and the, the normal religious practices. In other words, he is a, he's a friend of God. He loves the Lord. He worships Him. He recognizes and seeks atonement regularly. He goes to the Lord for forgiveness. His point is, there's nothing I've done and I've left on the table that I haven't taken to the Lord or done my best to address with Him openly. 
In fact, he goes on and he will here again. He challenges any to come and charge him with something that they could validly and certainly put their finger on and say, this is why God is doing this to you. He proclaims his innocence. An innocence of a man that is a sinner but redeemed by faith, which would be very similar to our very own circumstance. And this is Job. Three cycles of dialogues, they had gotten more and more intense. And now that all the dialogues are done, chapter 29, 30, and 31, this is Job's final testimony. And that's why we call it the final testimony. We are looking at 30 and 31 because we looked at 29 last week. But really, they all fit together. And if I can give you kind of, a, kind of an overview of this final testimony by the three chapters, it is chapter 29 is his godly longing for past goodness. Remember we're talking about longing and how um, that is something that's built into us. And he has this, this heavenward, this Godward longing, right? When he thinks about all things that were blessed and good and secure because of who God was in his life when things were well. That was 29. And then chapter 30 is about his current lament. See, that was yesterday, but what is today? And his current lament for his present dejection. That everything has gone wrong, right? Everything in his life has gone wrong. And so he laments today. And the third is a covenant faithfulness as his final word. In other words, if, if there is a final thing that he's supposed to say, and we'll see that he anticipates that he's going to die. So as far as Job is concerned, at this moment, right, at this particular junction in the chronology of the book of Job, Job anticipates that after chapter 31, he's going to die. In fact, the end of uh, chapter 31 ends with this phrase, the words of Job are ended. So he thought this was it. So that's why this is his final testimony. This is the final word. And the final thing in chapter 31 that he wants to speak to is his covenant faithfulness. He has made a promise to the Lord, and he has fulfilled that promise as far as he humanly knows. And so his words are done. He closes the chapter on it, and that's what we'll look at. Chapter 30 and chapter 31. That's the outline of his entire final testimony, but today we'll be looking at chapter 30 and chapter 31. And uh, two main simple sections we already addressed, his current lament and his covenant faithfulness. But let, let's pray. And ask the Lord that the Lord would open the scriptures to us. Because it's such a long portion of scripture, I will read it as we go and not read it in its entirety before. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Even as we sing these wonderful songs that remind us of his birth and what a gift that is to a dying and sinful world. Lord, help us to personalize that. To remember in ourselves our absolute unworthiness to be seen, to be viewed, to be cherished, to be loved, to be redeemed by you. And yet you chose to cast your love on us and your willingness to sacrificially love us is perfectly displayed in having your son become incarnate, to become flesh and blood and to live a perfectly righteous life and to lay down his life in exchange for ours so that we might be free from the burden and the penalty of, of our sins since that we have committed because they have been nailed to the cross in him. We pray to thank you that as this Christmas time 
continues to unfold over the next uh, couple of Sundays, that, uh, that we could celebrate the birth of a Savior, of a King, of, our, of the God-man who has done all things, not because we deserved it, not because we are deserving or, or we have earned it, but because of your grace towards us. So as we look to the book of Job, Lord, may we be reminded of that righteous sufferer. We are thankful for the faithfulness of Job, but we know that that's just a foreshadow, a foretaste of the great faithfulness of the suffering servant to come. And that suffering servant is the one that we worship and praise and adore. We praise you for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. So we're taking a look at that first chapter, chapter 30, and I remind you again that, that chapter 30 is, is really the, the second chapter in, in kind of his long dialogue, right? We had this godly longing for past goodness in chapter 29, and then we come to chapter 30, and he, talk, he speaks to his current lament because of his present distress. So, so think about this way. He thinks about how good life was in the past, yesterday, and how bad things have come today. You see that immediately, right, as we look at his current lament, um, as he begins by this idea that he is outcast by outcast. Like the ones that are already outcast are the ones that will mock and will have hostility towards Job. Look at verses 1 through 8. But now, and that but now should pick up immediately from that sense of Yesterday, right? Years ago, months ago, actually, according to chapter 29, life was so good. But now, he says, they laugh at me. Who laughing at you, Job? Well, just read on. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. He's saying there are individuals who are mocking and laughing and ridiculing me. They're younger individuals, and they're such worthless individuals that I would not have hired their fathers to tend to my dogs. Dogs in that society, not like our dogs today. Like, we love our dogs, right? Some of you guys treat your dogs better than you might treat your kids, right? Oh, what are you doing, doggy, right? Like, oh, hey, what's up, no? Right? Like, you guys might do that. Right? But because we love them, we put little Christmas outfits on them, etc. But back in those days, dogs, right, even domestic dogs, were considered the most dirty things. I imagine if I could if I could give this as a portrait to you, that it would be like as if, if our family had domesticated rats. Right? And we're just like, oh, we love our rats. No, you wouldn't. You you use them for whatever purposes. Go eat that garbage, right? Whatever, chew through that wire for me, right? You, you let the rats do what rats do, but it, it is a detestable creature. And that's how that ancient world thought of dogs. So you see that as you read through the Old Testament, that sometimes people use, you know, dogs as an insult. You know, you should be eating with the dogs. Or I wouldn't hire you, this is Job, saying I wouldn't hire you to take care of dogs. And he's saying, these are the sons of those guys. These are worthless individuals, younger than me. And instead of giving me any compassion or respect, these undesirables, they come and they make fun of me. They laugh at me. It's to mock and to make light of somebody, right? Verse 2, what could I gain from the strength of their hands, whose men whose vigor is gone through want and hard hunger? They gnaw the dry, dry ground by night and waste and desolation. They pick saltwort and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. 
So see, he's saying that these guys, um, they're not just like, you know, the poor of the city. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 31, um, we, we recognize clearly that Job is not putting down people because they're poor or because their situation is dire. He's saying these are, these are knuckleheads, right? Who, because of their inability and because they don't care necessarily to work or to do stuff, that there are scavengers out in the wild. These are such men, right, who are unreliable, outcasts. And yet these are the guys that are making fun of me. What a contrast to the yesteryear, right? When the princes would put hands over their mouths. When the older men would stand up. When the young men would make way because Job is entering into the city gate. Verse 5. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as, as after a thief. In other words, you know, the city is always yelling at them to get out of here, you know. In the gullies of the torrents, they must dwell in the holes of the earth and of the rocks. They live in, um, in, in caves and indentions, in any place that they can find shelter in the, in the wild. Among the bushes, they bray under the nettles, they huddle together. And this is his comment on, on, on who these individuals are, these outcasts. Right? Verse 8, a senseless, nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land. When it says that they are senseless, it speaks of them being, being foolish. And just so that we understand, especially in Old Testament um, and especially in Old Testament poetry, when human beings are referenced as being senseless or foolish, we're not talking about an intellectual problem. We're talking about a spiritual and moral that's Psalm 14.1, when it says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God, everything that follows after that first statement is that they do reckless and horrifyingly sinful things. It is not an intellectual issue. It's not a lack of education that Scripture is referring to. By saying they are senseless or, or that they are foolish, it means that they choose a path of immorality, of sin, of violence. It's a spiritual issue, and they are both spiritually senseless and nameless. And by nameless, we don't mean that, you know, nobody knows what to call them, you know. Uh, outcast one, you know, you know, like in those movie scripts, you know. It's like, hey, I, I'm, I'm famous, I'm in that movie. Yeah, where did you play? Outcast three, <laughs> right? It's, 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 not, it's not that they don't have a moniker, something to call them by. That guy's name is Butch, that guy's name is Cassidy, right? These guys are individuals. They have names. The point is that they have no reputation for good. They are nameless in that they have offered nothing that we can, we can put their names to and say, hey, at least that's the son of so-and-so. You know? That guy has a reputation for nothing. So who are these outcasts? These are these, this, this, this wandering band of wicked young men. These are the kind of guys that have come into Job's life to mock him as he's sitting outside the city walls. Well, what do they do specifically? Well, verses 9 through 15. And now I have become their song. They're like making rap songs about Job, you know, and making fun of him. I'm a byword to them. A byword is like, uh, is like a proverbial statement. He's saying that, that in the same way that we say that guy epitomizes strength or power or intelligence, He's kind of epitomized. He's become a byword to them. He's like, hey, man, quit messing around, man. You're going to joke me, dude. Right? 
man, if you do that to me, I'm telling you right now, God's going to job you up. Right? He's become a byword, a nickname for things that are uh, uh, you know, terrible and tragic. Verse 10, they abhor me. They think, they think Job is horrifying. Something's wrong with him. They keep aloof from me. So they, they stay away from him. They make songs about him. And then look at the second part of verse 10. They do not hesitate to spit at the side of me. And because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. God has loosed his cord, and the idea probably is that the cord that keeps, like, the tent pegs together and keeps the tent up, God has unwound him, and his death is imminent. His tent, his, his mortality is about to come down. And because they sense all of this, right, they cast off restraint in Job's presence, make fun of him, spit at him, right, make up songs about him. Verse 12, on my right hand, the rabble rise, they push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As though a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. He uses everything from the idea, right, of a mob rushing against him and trampling him to an enemy, right, at his city who have widened the breach and they're just starting to roll in and crash in and, uh, and attack him to the supernatural terrors. Verse 15, when, when Job speaks of the idea of terrors, he's always talking about something that's, that's kind of like supernatural. Or in our culture, in our day, we might see something that's ghoulish, Right? Like during Halloween time, when we're thinking about like these like scary stories and these demon-possessed stories, that's the kind of stuff that the Old Testament, especially um, Job, would use for words like terror. He means that there's something that is supernatural, um, you know, naturally unexplainable that is turned towards him, and it's a horrifying and, and frightening thing. And he says his, his honor has been pursued by the wind, and his prosperity has passed away like a cloud. Just as uh, the weather would change day to day, it seems things are so different in a short amount of time. All of that, right? All of that entire section to say that this is his current calamity. He has been cast out by outcasts. This is who they are. This is what they have done. And furthermore, he'll go on to say in verses 16 to 23, he's been abandoned in the midst of his affliction. Look at verse 16. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. You know, Paul uses that, that similar terminology of being poured out, right? That he is being poured out as a drink offering in Philippians and then in, in 2 Timothy 4, right? He's talking, about, he's talking about dying. Job fully anticipates that his mortality is approaching and the days of affliction have taken a hold of He's going to die. This is why this is his final testimony. As far as he knows, humanly speaking, God has not spoken to him, right? God is not answering him. God is not rescuing him. So his path will end soon. His breath, his nephesh, his soul is being poured out. I love that because in, in the Hebrew, that word nephesh can mean breath or soul or even life energy, right? And the idea that he's just this, that all of his life is just being poured out. It's almost gone. 
And then verse 17, the night racks my bones. He's just talking about the difficulties. Like at night is the time that you hopefully get some rest. But he says, no, it racks my bones. The, par- the pain that gnaws me takes, uh, takes no rest. There, there, there is no rest, right, from, from the pain that, uh, that keeps him up all night. Verse 18, with great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. And I think this, this picture is this idea like, like his clothing is strangling him. It feels like strangulation to him. It's uncomfortable. And so even his, his, uh, his, uh, his clothing, that which is supposed to shelter and keep him, even that is turning against him. In verse 19, and here's the main thing. God has cast me into the mire, and I've become like dust and ashes. Job never veers from the knowledge that it is God who has dictated that these things are to be his life right now. He, he, he doesn't fear or shrink back from asking God for an explanation and rescue. He does. But his whole point is that even as he cries out in his affliction, he feels just abandoned. God is not answering, and so I am going to die. God has cast me into the mire, right? And you think, well, what's a mire? Well, I don't know. It's something like quicksand, I guess. But this is a, this is a phrase, a word that is used, especially in the psalmist and in Job, in, the, in Hebrew poetry, for that which is like kind of this deep and sinking mud that is a hopeless situation you can't get out of. And as you sink deeper and deeper, the torturous nature of such quicksand right, is that you know you're going to die. And as it fills up slowly, it's this slow, torturous reality coming upon you that it gets worse and worse, heavier and heavier until you finally give up the ghost. Until finally your nephesh has been fully poured out. Verse 20 through 23. This is Job saying, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. He's saying, and this would be the posture, right, of prayer, especially in the Old Testament, the saints would stand and pray. For us, sometimes we might get on our knees, we might, you know, just close our eyes and fold our hands. But in those days, they would stand, and he's saying, I would cry out to you in prayer, and you don't answer me, and all you do in hearing all my distress is you just watch. You're just looking. So verse 21, he says, you have turned cruel to me. This is Job expressing in in very earnest and personal and kind of very open ways, very vulnerable ways, how he feels about his God. He's saying, you've turned cruel to me. You have never been cruel to me. And with the might of your hand, you persecute me. This is your hand that is pressing down, right, and causing this affliction and tribulation upon me. And in verse 20, you lift me up on the wind, and you make me ride on it. And if it was that, if that was it, and that was that was the period, that would be pretty cool. He says, but and then you toss me about in the roar of the storm. He uses the illustration of the uncontrollable storm, right? Think tornado and Judy Garland in that, remember in that, in that Wizard of Oz movie? Woo! Goes up in a tornado. That is not real. That is crazy, dangerous, right? And Job is saying, that's how I feel. God has sent his tornado, his uncontrollable storm, to take me up into the sky and then to dash me down into pieces. He feels the cruelty of it. He feels the abandonment of it because he's been standing in prayer 
And God has only been listening and watching. Verse 23, for I know that you will bring me to death. See, a reaffirmation of the fact that he's going to die. I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all the living. He knows that his death is coming about at the hand of God and is coming soon. So again, here he is, right? Speaking of being outcast by outcast, but then cast out by God himself, abandoned in his affliction. And he recognizes fully, and, and you need to see this and hear this, right? Job doesn't doubt that God is there, nor does he doubt God and his character. He's just saying, God, I know you're watching. I know you hear me. Because all these years of my life, you have watched and heard and acted and blessed and looked after me. You have been my close friend. And here I have been crying out and you have been deathly silent. And I assume it's because you're going to kill me. That, that when all is said and done, all my prayers for release, for help, for relief from this pain, you're not going to answer because you're going to let me die. That, that's what I sense. And he feels abandoned in the midst of his affliction. So this is him just kind of summarizing his real current lament. And finally, there's this reversal for everything that he has done that is good. Right? This is interesting, verse 24. Yet, does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? He's saying, if, if a building fell on me and my arm was free, wouldn't I lift my arm and say, Lord... You can I'm right here. Can you rescue me? Is that not normal, right? For one to cry out. And it is normal for one to cry out. Especially if he believes that God can hear and see him. Verse 25. Did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And I waited for light, darkness came. You got to catch the tenor of this, right? Verse 25 and 26 is Job saying, Lord... In my life, didn't I weep with those whose day was hard? In other words, people had a hard life. I wept with those kind of individuals, right? Uh, my soul was grieved for the needy. Job is saying, you know my soul. You know my attitude. You know my very emotional life, my inner being and my heart. You know that I have had compassion and kindness, love and sympathy for those in need. I have given good for those that were having it bad. He says, but when I hope for good, only evil came. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go by darkened, verse 28, but not by the sun. I think he's talking about either his mood or his inner being, that there is darkness, uncertainty. But he, so he, by saying, but not by the sun, he's saying, I'm not just getting tan, I'm not getting a darker skin by being exposed, which may be true as well. He's saying there's a darkness that's settling in his soul. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. He says, but I am just the brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. That's kind of humorous to you. I think that's kind of humorous to you, right? That there's ostriches hanging around. But his point is that he's just free and in the wild. Verse 30, my skin turns black and falls from me and my bones burn with heat. I think he's talking about like his boils and stuff. They eventually blacken. They, they flake off. There's this nasty stuff going on with his skin, right? Verse 31, my lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. Verse 31 implies that Job was a worshiper. He loved the song. And he loved to, to worship his father um, in song. And now the only things that he could think of by way of any tune 
is, um, is, a, is a mourning dirge, meaning a funeral dirge, something you speak of about the sadness of, of life and the, and the encroachment of death. And everything that he wants to lift his voice to ends up in just weeping. And this, this is a tremendous reversal. He's saying that everything that should have been good, like, like wasn't I the guy that would help the poor? Wasn't I the guy that would comfort the, the needy and the broken, the injured, and, the, and the, the ones in distress and in pain? And yet, when it's come upon me, I am rejected, not just from people, but from God. The sufferings of Job are meant to be a foretaste of the sufferings of Christ. And, and, and I think we've said that, and we'll say that again. Because sometimes we are tempted to think of our Savior, right? The little baby born in a manger that we're celebrating as, well, he's God. I know as a young believer, I kind of thought that. It's like, well, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Oh, that's awesome, you know? But he's God. He's probably like, bam, you know, like, come on, bring all that sin on. Like, this is nothing to me, right? I could take infinite amounts of this. But you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Our flock, and I want to boast on this, our flock read through all of Matthew. How'd your flock do? <laughs> Sorry, that's probably, probably but, um, but we did And then as we were coming to the end of that right, We're talking about that um, we're, we're talking about how, how Interestingly in the Garden of Gethsemane Jesus is he's, he's Emotionally anxious Not anxious not to sin But emotionally anxious Like if this cup from past can pass from me Like let it pass But your will be done, not mine and yet, this doesn't mean that he was in any way timid about everything that was to come. Because after that prayer, and then the soldiers come to collect him, he is all business, right? Even to the very last, when he gives up his spirit, he is still in absolute control. He tells them, who are you looking for, right, in the Gospel of John? So we're looking for Jesus And then he says, you know, let these go. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus and others. He says, I am. And when he says it, and again, it's not the way that he says it. It's not a power word. It's not a spell, a conjuring. It's because the great I am is speaking his ineffable name. And when he says I am, they all fall back onto their, they can't help themselves. Something supernatural has leveled, right, their capacity to move forward. He demonstrates his strength all throughout. So if we see him in the garden praying, Right? That if there is another way, let that be done, but your will be done, not mine. We shouldn't see that as a moment of weakness, as if he is, he is in terror and he will no longer like, fulfill his promises. No, he, he does as he does in full control. He never loses control. And in fact, the scriptures say that when it was all done and he says it is finished, he gave up his spirit. None had taken it from him. He chooses even the timing of his own death. But then how are we supposed to understand what's happening in the garden? The suffering's real. And the unrighteous suffering is absolutely real. And Job, right, if, if Job is nothing else, and Job is much more than this, but he is at least a taste of that great suffering servant to come. Do you see that? And so if Jesus is the epitome of the absolutely righteous, right, has done nothing wrong and perfectly, right, holy in all things, and he suffers, what does he suffer? He suffers shame, name-calling, being spit upon, 
We're supposed to see that, and having read Job, we're supposed to say, dude, that's Job, but in the form of a redeemed sinner. And then we're supposed to take one step further back and say, wait a minute, if this is Jesus perfectly, Job imperfectly, then this is us besides Job. And the suffering that he endures, and the abandonment that he feels, we may live that at some point in this broken world. It's not eternal. Praise the Lord. And Job knows it's not eternal. But it might be, <clears throat> might be our difficulty in this life. Can I read to you James 5, 7 through 11? Because verse 11 says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. He's the only time that Job is mentioned in the New Testament as a paragon of steadfastness. But I wanted to read you the context of James 5, 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That entire passage in its context is about, hang on, brothers, because it's bad. But this isn't the end. This isn't our end, right? Hang on, brothers and sisters, because it can be really bad. But the Lord is at hand, and His judgment comes with Him. Hang on and be steadfast, endure to the very end, even if it's a sad and tragic end, because you remember people like Job. And so then now we come back to Job, and we recognize that Job is convinced in his current situation that he is outcast, he is abandoned, that his goodness has been turned around, that everything that people would have said he deserves, he is not getting, but he's getting the opposite, as if he is a wicked, wicked man. And with all that in mind, Job knows he's going to end. And he has not abandoned faith in God. You say, well, he seems to complain sometimes. I think he does. I think he laments, complains. I think he says stuff that reveals the tender moments and the tender uh, portions of his very soul. But even with all of that, he knows he's going to die and that God's still in control. I think he believes that something, right? He said that, I believe my Redeemer lives and in that day he would stand, right? He would stand, and, and I will be okay. But even if that theologically is true, and he believes that, even if the Lord gives and the Lord takes, blessed be the Lord, name of the Lord, is all of it true? It still hurts. It still feels like I am perishing. And it still feels like I am abandoned. That, that's the calamity of Job. And that's his summation of what he's feeling in the moment. And I think that's, that's in a condensed form what Jesus is praying in the garden. Remember he brought, you know, his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and three times he checked on them. He goes, you guys keep falling asleep? Can you, guys, can you guys stay a moment? I imagine that if I'm Peter, James, or John, I look back on the testimony of Scripture and on that moment, 
I think, man, we should, we really should have stayed away. Like we should have like like punched each other or started wrestling or we should have done anything. We didn't know it was all that. We we just thought we we're praying in the garden, right? But what a shame that uh, the testimony of us is we keep falling asleep in in the most most dire moment of Jesus's earthly ministry as he's preparing to take on the sins of millions, maybe billions of human souls, right? Well, that's his current lament. And then as a final testimony, he ends with covenant faithfulness. There's a lot to cover here, and we'll be moving through it kind of quickly. But I want you to see this particular structure here, right? Because I think chapter 31 is interesting because it begins with this idea, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze at a virgin? And you're like, wait, this is like the final thing you're thinking and saying before you, you anticipate your death. And the first thing you want to talk about in this final few paragraphs is, I made a covenant not to be Googling, you know, young ladies with my eyes. That's not, that's not wrong. That's good. Praise the Lord for that, Job. But that's the thing you want to mention, right? And then towards the end, right, he speaks of uh, 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 verse 38 of this last chapter. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow, etc. And again, I'm like, wait, that's what you want to talk about? Whether or not you've been a good steward of the land and the resources God has blessed you with? What is going on? Until you see this structure and you realize something. It's called a chiastic structure in Hebrew poetry and it happens... It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens semi-frequently, right? You'll find it in a lot of, uh, particularly in the poetries, but sometimes even in the narratives, where they think about a theme that would be A, like covenant faithfulness declared. He's going to declare his covenant faithfulness, right? And then B, um, how he's going to defend that he has been faithful. Check it out. You know, put me on trial. You'll see I have been faithful. And then C would be covenant maintained, meaning that he goes through kind of a catalog of all the things that he has kept himself from as a means of fulfilling his promise, his covenant promise to God, his Father, right? And then it goes back and mirrors what had already been said in that he had talked in B about faithfulness, right? Defendant? Well, B prime, that's prime, you know, that has a little bit, what is that? That's not asterisk, what is that? Apostrophe, thank you. Right? We say that, but the apostrophe stands for prime. And so be prime. So it mirrors the theme that happened in verses 4 to 6. But the second time, it's about his faithfulness defended again, but kind of spun in a slightly different way. And then it returns to the first statement, or the first theme, in a different statement. His covenant faithfulness is declared. So I think he uses the illustration of, I've made a covenant with my eyes concerning lust. Right? The lust of my soul. And then he used the illustration, I have made a covenant commitment to be a steward of all the resources you've given to me. So he's, he's, it's not just about lust, and it's not just about being a farmer, right? He's saying that whatever things you have given me, whatever parameters you have given me, I have demonstrated covenant faithfulness, I have demonstrated covenant faithfulness, so it begins and ends there. I think that's why the structure <clears throat> is the way that it is. And the bulk of it is at C. You see this 7 through 34. And I'm going to run through that really quickly when we get there. Because there's, uh, I didn't even count. I think there's like 8 or 9, right? Different particular sins that he addresses. Just bam, 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 bam. 
just saying that, you know, that this is how he has demonstrated that he has done his part to maintain his faithfulness to the Lord and the promise that he made him. But let's, let's dive in then. So if we look at covenant faithfulness, whoop, what's happening here? Uh, I, I'm missing a slide, I apologize. There should be one slide with just A, though ignore B right now, right? It's just covenant faithfulness declared, verses one through three. I have made a covenant with my eyes, how then can I gaze at a virgin? The term virgin here is a young lady that's unmarried, and he's suggesting that how can I gaze, and I think maybe a better translation would be Google her, right? Google? Google. Goggle, thank you. Goggle? But that's not, Google, Google, Google. Thank you. That took us a little while to get around our our normal English vocabulary, but oogle her with my eyes. In other words, it, it implies much more than simply just kind of seeing someone. And, oh, that's an attractive young lady, you know? It implies that there's more at his heart. He is looking with lust. And he says, how then could I do such a thing as to look on a young lady with lust? Some might think, and your unbelieving friends might think, what's the big deal? You didn't do anything physical, right? Well, verse 2 explains what the big deal is. What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty and High? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of inequity? If you understand this, the, the main emphasis is not verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes that I won't oogle, right? A virgin. The main emphasis is verses 2 and 3. That I made a covenant to be godly because of who God is. What would be my portion? This is his point. This is similar to, you remember the story of Joseph when Potiphar's wife is like, come on, Joseph, you know, be with me, right? And then he's like, no. And then he says literally, how can I do this thing and sin against not Potiphar, but against my God? This is an issue of covenant, right? Of, of promise that he has made to the Lord. That's his point. So he comes with the, the issue of lust, but that's not the primary thing. I think the idea is that he has made a covenant with God, and what would his portion be? What would his heritage be? He would lose all of that, or he deserves to lose all of that, if he would fall into his lust. Because calamity is for the unrighteous and disaster for workers of inequity. And I think the other reason why he specifically chooses of all the lusts of the heart that we could speak of, and he'll speak of many of them when we get to point C in the middle, right? But I think he chooses this because, um, because infidelity, especially in the Old Testament, is often equated with idolatry. Unfaithfulness in our marriage commitment and unfaithfulness in our commitment to the Lord is often seen as the same thing, so that often Israel is blamed for their spiritual adultery because of our, their idolatrous, other God-worshipping ways. Right? So failure in this area would lead to the breaking of the covenant that he has made to the Lord. This covenant faithfulness, that's what he's declaring, right? that he has guarded against that. And so from here on, you'll see this kind of pattern of, if I have done this, then let this be to me. Right? If I have done this, then let this bad thing happen to me. So that's A. Then we go to B. B is faithfulness defended. Verses 4 to 6. Does not he... Does not he see my ways and number all of my steps? Isn't in other words, doesn't God see and know and know exactly how many steps I take and where I've gone? He says, if I have walked, and here's the if-then patterns that will repeat itself. 
If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance. Let God know my integrity. See, he's saying, so if I have done falsely, Lord, you come and you, you demonstrate that. You weigh me in the balance and you let me know if I have been false or not. Or let others know if I've been false or not. His point is that his faithfulness can be defended. This is a man with a clean conscience. He's examined himself, I'm certain, right? In, in, uh, uh, amongst his friends and even before them, as he has spent weeks, who, what's turned into months, and all the suffering that has happened, as he's dwelled on and thought about it, at some point he has taken a catalog of his life and thought, Lord, do I deserve this? Have I done something? And as he walks through it, he is convinced of his innocence. And because of that, with a clean conscience, he's saying, Lord, I can defend my faithfulness. I haven't broken my covenant commitment to you. So weigh me if you need to. Search me. Let me know if there's some wicked way within me, right? Look into this on my behalf, Lord. So he has established his covenant faithfulness. He has declared that his intention, he's made a covenant to put away lust and sin and the sins of his heart because it's about who God is. And he says, Lord, I'm convinced of my faithfulness. Weigh me out if you need to, right? That's four to six. Then we get to the, the center of the chiastic structure. His covenant maintained. This is seven through 34. And we'll walk through this fairly quickly. So have your Bibles open and we'll jam through it. The first is spiritual wandering. Wandering. I'll give, I'll give you a single word for each one. Wandering in verses seven and eight. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. You see that if is that if I've gone a different way, if I've been deceitful or I've been cheating people, if my heart has gone after my eyes, meaning I look at something and I want it, I do whatever it takes to get it and there's, if there's any spot left on my hand in sin, let me work hard and sow and other people get to eat that. And let everything that grows for me be rooted out and then I lose it all. If I'm wandering. It's the more general sin that he addresses first. Then verses 9 through 12, he addresses the, the, the particular sin of adultery. He says, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I've lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. That's, that's oddly and terribly, right? Kind of, you know, a strong illustration of, of if I have committed adultery, may, may someone commit adultery with my wife. He says, verse 11, for what would be a heinous, for that would be a heinous crime. That would be an, an inequity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abdon, right? That means destruction, total destruction. It's the embodiment of that which consumes and destroys. It would burn to the root all my increase. You get what he's saying? He's, he's not just saying, you know, if I have committed adultery, let another man commit adultery with my wife. He's not saying that would be fine. No, he's saying this is all of it. Horrible. It's heinous. I wouldn't be participant in that and I wouldn't want that on anybody. Right? He's saying it's like fire that consumes unto complete destruction. He means that some things are burned to the point that there's nothing left. That's what this kind of sin would do. It would burn the root of all my increase. Of anything that I, of anything else I did that could be successful, it's burned out. 
Adultery. Oppression, verse 13 to 15. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did, did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? This is amazingly enlightened for a man who lived in a period um, of slaves, right, and masters. He is saying, if I reject my male servants and my female servants, if they have a complaint against me, Master, you're asking me to do too much. I can't accomplish this. And then I'm worried you're going to get upset because I'm not going to finish the task you've given to me. He says, I, I listen to that. And if I go, hey, shut up and do your work, right? Sounds like some of your bosses, right? If I was that, he's saying, then, then God should rise up against me. If I, if I, if, 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 you know, if there's an inquiry set to how I've been treating people, what am I going to say when God asks, hey, how are you treating those that are your underlings? How are you treating those that, uh, that are to be in submission to you? How are you treating those individuals? And then he says this, did not he who made me in the womb make that male servant, that male slave, and that female slave? He recognizes, right, their worth as human beings. And he says, and did not one fashion us in the womb? It's like we're the same. All born of a woman, right? All, all human beings made in the image of God. And it's a remarkable thing. And other portions of the Old Testament speak to that same thing, right? Proverbs 22, 2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Proverbs 17, 5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, capital M. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. This is Job expressing that same idea. No oppression. I guess that's the word that we would use there. Wandering, adultery, oppression. Then stinginess. Verse 16 through 23. Oh no, sorry, 16 through 20. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eye of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as a father. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or, ne or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he is not warmed by the fleece of my sheep, he leaves the then alone because he's going to add it to the next one. But he's saying that he has, he has disavowed any kind of miserliness, stinginess, where I'm just keeping it for myself. He's a generous individual. He's rejecting stinginess. In verse 21 through 23, right, continues the if statement, but, but kind of turns, I think, a little bit. And he's talking about abuse, particularly against the vulnerable. If I have raised my hand, verse 21, against the fatherless, the orphan, because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced His, uh, His majesty. He's saying, man, if I ever raise my hand to the orphan, right, to strike him or to do wrong to him, then let my shoulder fall off and my elbow be broken. And he says, verse 20, because the terror of calamity from God, I could not have faced his majesty. See, everything is in relation to who God is and who he is because of him. Avarice or greed in verses 24 and 25. If I've made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I've rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand was found much. 
He's saying, man, if I have, if I have taken this, this worship of wealth, and speaking of worship, he goes on to idolatry in verses 26 to 28. If I have looked at the sun when it's shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand. It is a funny one, right? The, the idea of my hand, right? My mouth and my hand. It's actually my hand kissed my mouth. So like, it's like my hand goes, right? Like chef kisses. Like it's, you know? it's, like, it's like delicious. It's wonderful, right? Because of the things that I've seen in the celestial stars and the sun above, I will worship these things that God has created. Verse 28, this also would be inequity to be punished by the judges. For why I would have been false to God above. See, it keeps coming back to the Lord. Vengeance, verse 29 and 30. If I rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overtook him. Haven't you ever had that feeling? Guy cut you off and you think, man, I hope, I hope he blows a tire like, like a mile down the road, right? Like that would be justice, right? He says, man, I have sought and desired vengeance. No, verse 30, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. Verse 31, 32, parsimony. You guys know what that means? Neither did I. Parsimony means extreme unwillingness to spend money or resources. Look at verse 31. If the men of my tent have said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. He's saying that, is there a neighbor that would say something like, you know, um, yeah, that, that Job, he, he's, he's stingy, man. He's, he won't, he's unwilling to spend money to take care of me. In fact, Eliphaz accused Job of denying water to the weary and withholding food from the hungry in Job 22, 7. That's his exact accusation. And Job is saying, I welcome sojourners and travelers and strangers. Hypocrisy, 33, 34. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my inequity in my heart because I stood in great fear of the multitude and contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. In other words, if I had been a fraud, concealing transgressions, hiding because of the fear of man, right? He's saying all of that stuff is unfaithfulness. See, do you see covenant faithfulness declared, defended, and then here's a list of the things that is a demonstration of his life, covenant maintained. Then he goes back to be prime. Right? To say, his, again, his faithfulness should be defended. He says in verse 35 to 37, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. He's saying, man, if only someone would write this down, I would sign it. Let's, let's get this on paper. <laughs> it's called the book of Job. Right? It's on paper. Verse 36, Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. He's saying, I'd be like Miss America. I'd wear it like a sash. Like, you know, this is me. This is what I've been. This is my covenant faithfulness to God. I would bind it on me as a crown. He'd wear it on his head to say, I'm, I belong to God. Verse 37, I would give him an account of all my steps. He's saying, Lord, earlier in B, he said, Lord, you can weigh me. And here he's saying, Lord, you can, you can check out every step I've taken. Like a prince, I would approach him. He's saying, like, like someone that, that is significant to him. I would walk to the Lord because he believes that he has lived in a way that honors him. Lord, take an account of all my steps and look for yourself. Then he returns finally 
to the covenant declared again. In A, he said, I have made a covenant with my eyes, and we said it's really about the Lord, right? I couldn't do such a thing and be unfaithful to him. Well, he says a similar thing here, but it's about the land. In verse 38, if my land is cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The interesting thing is he is he's casting out the very judgments of Genesis 3, right? Let the ground not give of its produce easily with hard work and with broken brow. May I work to try to get something to eat. And he's saying, let, let that covenant decla- declaration that I have, I have done my best to steward everything, whether it's the lust of my heart or it's the stewardship of all your resources, Lord, I have done my best to keep my promises to you. And so having said all of that, whether it's his heart, whether it's his external doing, whether it's the internal person, or it's the external actions and works, he is saying, Lord, I offer all of this for your consideration, and I know it's too late, and I'm going to die. And so his final word, these are the words, all right? These are the words of Job. The words of Job are ended. See, this is his conclusion of all things. He maintains his, his, his uprightness to the very end, right? He, he does his best to do what would be honoring to his God and Savior. And in the, even in the midst of suffering and occasionally complaining and of kind of think, thinking, Lord, why is this happening? Even with all of that, he's still a man of faith. And the end product and the end judgment, right, which is actually the beginning judgment, God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. And at the very end, he says to Job's friends, Eliphaz, What's your problem? You guys need to repent because you've spoken wrong of me, unlike my servant Job. God's the one that affirms his character. Job is certain of it, but he can't understand what's happening. And he'll submit his way to the things of the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we come before you, we recognize this faithful suffering servant. But Lord, we'd be, we'd be remiss if we didn't use his example to look at the suffering servant to come. And Father, I don't know how the Old Testament saints looked at Job, probably with confusion and with concern. Um, But Lord, as New Covenant Christians, we look back and we recognize for all that he suffered, you had a perfect picture in mind of what you intended to do for him. And in the same way, our Savior, as as much as he suffered, and, and, and he prayed, Lord, with with sweat and mingled with blood to see if this cup could pass. Nevertheless, or he demonstrated faithfulness to the very end. And we reaped the harvest of his faithfulness. So we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you that even in the midst of the worst of, of, of tragedy, this is not the end. This world is not our end. And we look forward to the world to come because of your redemption of us. In Jesus' name we pray.